Hi, I'm Alan Knox, and thanks for listening to the Lamp and Light Podcast. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This podcast seeks to let the Bible shine into our hearts and minds by hearing the word preached. This first season is a collection of sermons from the early chapters of the book of Psalms that I preached at Crossroad Christian Church in McKinney, Texas. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So Psalm chapter 8 is probably one of the more famous psalms uh, in, in the book, uh, and mainly probably just from the uh, first few verses. It is a, a psalm that is cited in the New Testament as, uh, as even by the Lord Jesus himself in relationship to the fact that um, God has established the, in the mouths of babies and infants, established strength. And, and it is just a very powerful psalm, and it teaches us really about our place in the world. Uh, this is a thing that I, I believe is very important for where we are as Christians, because there is a great emphasis in uh, at least American culture right now on the place of nature, on the place of animals, and it, it almost feels as though uh, sort of everything is being elevated except human beings. I was just reading an article in World Magazine yesterday, uh, an editorial piece about <clears throat> the issue of abortion. And it just made the point again, and I've seen this in several places, how odd it is to live in a country where it is a criminal act uh, to kill certain kinds of animals that are on an endangered species list, and yet abortion is not only legal but encouraged uh, in, our, in our country. And it, it, is, it is a statement about the value that we place on human life. Well, where do we get that idea of human beings being valuable? And Psalm 8 is one of the places that we find this very idea spelled out. It, it is a psalm that draws a lot from the first few chapters of Genesis and the idea that we are created in the image of God. And so as we look at this psalm today, I hope you'll find it both encouraging and give you reasons to praise God, but also to give you a better sense of who we are as human beings in God's order uh, of creation. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1, Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
So I want to begin with the idea and just kind of just break this down into uh, certain points that I think are being made or at least should be drawn out from this psalm. I begin with the idea that God rules over all things as a glorious creator and king. You notice that verses 1 and 9 are identical where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you notice in your Bible, and I I think probably most of your Bibles will do it this way, the first Lord, as we read, O Lord, our Lord, the first Lord is in capital letters. Uh, So when you see that, when you see that the Lord with all capital letters It is a reference to the name, uh, God's personal name that is revealed in Scripture. It is most oftentimes uh, pronounced Yahweh. So we can see that um, the idea here is Yahweh our Lord, or we could say uh, Yahweh our King, the one who rules over us. And you notice the fact that it says O Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, um, it, it is a indication that what we have here is a personal relationship. At least in terms of, maybe not personal, but maybe corporate. That is, the psalmist is speaking for the people of Israel and saying, O Yahweh, you are our Lord, our King. That's a pretty profound statement, by the way, if if this is David writing this psalm, who is the King. Uh, Because it is a moment of humility where the King himself recognizes there is one who rules above him. Throughout all the earth, God's name is majestic. And all creation displays in various ways the power and intelligence and creativity, the majesty of our God. And we come to verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. Um, Instead of you have established strength, the NIV says you have established praise. So uh, it's, it's somewhat difficult to, to understand what does this verse mean. And I think the idea, the reference to babies and infants, is a reference to those who are weak. So we're not necessarily talking about literal babies and literal infants. We're talking about those who have no power. So you, you see it in that, that framework, you see it as... God establishes those who are weak through, I, I can almost say, strong praise or his, uh, his praise that strengthens us. The point is that God is glorious and that is displayed in both what he has made and how he governs his creation. So he takes those who are weak and he exercises his lordship through these people who are weak, who trust in Him. In other words, God doesn't need strong kings or armies or great military or or governing uh, bodies. God can take 
in the case of David, someone who's just a shepherd and raise him up to be king. Or we think, for instance, in the New Testament, in the case of the apostles, you have not the academic elite, not the religious leaders of the first century, but fishermen and tax collectors, nobodies who become the very foundation of the church. And in this, we see the majesty of God. Um, it, it, does, it does not take a display of strength to rule through the most powerful army in the world. But for God to rule through small people is a display of His majesty and His power. That's, I think that's the idea here. The psalmist is just praising God for how he, uh, who He is and how He works in the world. But that's not really the, the point. I mean, that's the entry point. He, praising God for the way He rules in the world. But number two, God has a special interest in human beings. And uh, the way this is uh, brought about is that when we look at the vastness of the world that we live in, and you see this in verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So you can almost see this in a visual sense of the psalmist standing out on a starry night and just looking at the vastness of the world. And we could get the same experience, you know, if you've ever stood before the Rocky Mountains or if you've ever uh, uh, you know, gone to the ocean and you just look out and just as far as you can see, these things are there. And they look so large and so vast. Um, it, it is a moment where, and, and, and not just Christians, but I think most people, when they do something like this, they feel small compared to the ocean, compared to the stars of the heavens, compared to the uh, mountains. We as individuals feel really small. And I think that's, you know, when you, when you begin to realize then that God is above the mountains and God is above the stars and God is above the ocean, uh, then, then you get this sense of, if I feel small compared to these things, what, what am I compared to God? I mean, God who hangs the stars in the heaven. God governs the stars. God governs the ocean. God governs the mountains. What, what am I in the grand scheme of things? And verse 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So, the psalmist is saying it is, it is amazing and God is worthy of praise because he is not just concerned with the mountains and the oceans and the stars, but he is mindful of us and he cares for us. Genesis says that we are created in the image of God. In verse 5 it says, You have made him a little, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
Now, this is a um, this is a tough verse to understand because if I'm if I'm getting this right, and I'm not totally sure that I'm right here, but I believe the word here for heavenly beings is the word Elohim, which is a word. Um, how, oh, how can I say this? This it is a word that is sometimes used for God. So you'll see, for instance, in the ESV at least, there is a uh, a footnote that says this can be translated, you have made him a little lower than God. I, I think that's even better than heavenly beings. Not, not because it puts us in a higher position, but because it puts us in the position of the psalmist who is amazed that this great and glorious God would be concerned with beings like us and would have elevated us to such a high position in the world. You know, the thing that we so often don't realize is that as human beings, we our primary calling is to represent God in this world. To rule over the creation as God's Delegates are his representatives. And you, I think when you begin to realize that, you begin to get a sense of what it means to say that we are fallen. We have fallen from that calling. So now we're concerned with little things and trying to take care of our own needs and, and not really concerned about God's world. We're just really concerned about ourselves. And we become so uh, center-focused, us-focused, self-focused that we begin to destroy the world that God has made and even human beings made in His image. But God has given us, and this is number three, God has given us as human beings a dignified calling. What is it that makes human beings higher than animals? Or than trees. The, the naturalistic assumption of the world that we live in today, the secular assumption is that because everything is nothing more than a biological product of evolution, then everything has the same value. And so you'll have people in our world who believe that a human being is worth no more than a dog or a cat or a pig or, or a tree for that matter. But God teaches us that we have been given dominion over this world. Verses 6 through 8 says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now that, that statement is meant to be taken as a whole, of the whole of creation. In other words, everything that has been made has been placed under human beings in terms of its value and in terms of its position of dominion. This is a reflection of Genesis 1 and 2, where the creation account is given, and human beings who are created in the image of God are given the calling of filling the earth and subduing it. 
Now, we, we have to be somewhat careful, I think, with what that means. It doesn't mean that we're to sort of conquer creation and make it do what we want or to exploit creation or to freely destroy or waste creation. The idea of, of filling the earth and subduing it is one of bringing further order to what God has created. Or to say it another way, we are to create beauty in this world as a reflection of the beauty of the God who made it. So uh, maybe one example of that is found in Genesis uh, when God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and their task is to tend the garden, to take care of the garden, to make it more ordered, more beautiful. And this is the very thing, I mean, if I could... If I could follow it in this train of thought. When God creates the world, the earth is without form and void. So it has no form and it has no content. It's empty. And so what you read about when you read of the account of the creation, the first three days of creation are about the form of the earth. So God creates light and God you know, creates the, the form of day and night, and he creates the, uh, the, the, uh, the waters above, and you know, the, creates the vegetation on the earth. And then God, in the last three days, begins to fill the earth. So, you know, you've got the stars and the moon that are hung on the, on the fifth day, or on the fourth day. And then, you know, on down to the creation of human beings. So you've got, what you've got then is form and content. And then when God creates human beings, he says to the human beings, fill the earth, there's content, and subdue it, there's form. So bring order to it and fill it. So the idea here, this is much more than saying, have a bunch of kids so there's more people on the earth. It is about living in God's world as those who are given dominion over the creation to follow in God's footsteps, who is the creator. God has given us the highest possible calling as human beings to follow in his footsteps in governing the world that he has made. So this is not, to be, not meant to be taken that we can do whatever we want. It is to be, this is, human beings are designed to be disciples of God, to follow in His footsteps. The creation is still God's creation. We are given dominion over the work of His hands. The creation is not ours. It's still the work of God's hands. But we are called to be stewards of what God has made. Called to bring order and beauty and peace to this world. Now, all people, <coughs> excuse me, all people are sinners. And this world has fallen. But our calling is to live in a way and to form cultures in a way that reflect God's original design for the world. 
So, so in other words, um, it is not that we are simply to say to people, you know, this whole world is going to hell and your only chance of salvation is Jesus Christ, so jump out of this world and belong to Jesus. So we don't, we don't care about the world anymore. That's never been how the church has acted. The church has declared God has passed judgment on the world. And the only hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ. But then to display that salvation, Christians began doing things like taking care of those who were sick, giving those who had died a dignified burial, uh, adopting unwanted children and giving them a home, uh, giving food to those who were hungry, attending to those who were in prison. All of these things were actions that were intended to make the world a more beautiful place reflecting the glory of God. Now this is why I say that the hope for our country is not in, in the political process. Uh, I, I think the hope for any country is never going to be found in a top-down process in which you, know, you get the right leader in the right place at the right time and they're able to make everybody do what they're supposed to do. Uh, historically, I don't think that can be shown to be the case. Quite the opposite. I think the hope for this country is when the gospel is proclaimed faithfully and displayed faithfully in this nation people begin to be converted and changed and those who are converted begin to live differently they begin to act differently towards their co-workers they begin to act differently towards what they do in their jobs they become more productive not not because they're trying to get more money but because they're trying to bring glory to god they become more productive they become more honest They become more faithful. They become more dependable because the Spirit of God is training us and raising up, giving birth in us to the fruit of the Spirit so that we're filled with more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I mean, just think about it from the point of view. If you read through the list of the fruit of the Spirit, wouldn't you want those attributes in a person who worked for you? Or a person who was taking care of your kids. Or a person who was teaching your child in high school. Wouldn't you want that kind of a person? And so when you have more and more Christians in a culture who are living in that kind of mature fruit, it seasons the whole of the culture. Changes the culture. Not from the top down from the bottom up. So that's why Christians have always seen the greatest job title to have, if if I could say it that way, is of a servant. So Jesus is the greatest among you, will be the servant of all. Because those who are serving are the ones who are seasoning the world like salt. So that leads us then really to the last point here. What is our responsibility as Christians 
in this world. We are to, first of all, if we're just looking at this psalm, and that's what we're doing this morning, we're looking at this psalm, our first responsibility is to praise and worship God. So the psalm begins and ends with praise, and I think we would be negligent if we didn't see in this chapter a genuine call for us to worship God for who He is and what He has done. We are commanded to have dominion over creation and to worship the Creator, not the other way around. And that's what I'm suggesting to you. The world we live in right now, uh, e- even I think unfortunately, even largely in a lot of churches, is a world where we have dominion over the Creator. In other words, we tell God what we want Him to do, and we worship the creation. So we are much more impressed by the glory of creation than we are by the glory of God. That's what I'm trying to say. But we're called to be those who have this order right, that we worship the Creator and have dominion, stewards over the creation. Second, we are to see all people as having a God-given dignity and value. Regardless of who they are or what they have done. This, again, is is something that is running contrary to our culture. Because our culture is very much driven right now by the value of the person is determined by how much value the person can add to the culture. So we're not, we don't have a life-valuing culture in this country. We have more, I think, of a utilitarian, which, which means if you can do something practical for us, then you have value. So the person who has value for making money or providing leadership or making the world a better place, they have value but if you are a, uh, a, for instance, an unborn child, you're not going to add any value to the world. So you don't have any. I mean, Hillary Clinton just recently said that an unborn child has no constitutional rights. Uh, that, that's, that's a statement about whether or not those human beings are worth keeping. So we have, we should have a value, a dignity for every human life, regardless of whether or not, regardless of mental capacity or physical capacity, regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of gender, uh, regardless of anything. If you're a human being, you have value and dignity and should be treated as such. And then number three, we have a calling, a responsibility as Christians to live and to lead under the authority of God. I I think we are in real trouble 
in the church today, and, and I mean, I would like to say worldwide, but I don't think I'm qualified to speak on the church worldwide. Uh, but I think I have a fairly decent idea of where we are within this nation. There is such a sense of not wanting, Christians not wanting to lead, not wanting responsibility, not wanting to be involved in the process of building the church. In other words, we want, we want the church to exist. We want the church to be there for us. We want the church to be available if we need them. We don't want them to be intrusive, but we do want them to have the kinds of programs and the kinds of music and the kinds of preaching that we like. And, and we're willing to show up as long as it's convenient for us to show up for those things. Uh, and as long as there's plenty of child care and as long as there's, you know, uh, snacks and as long as there's, you know, all the different things, as long as the room is comfortable, uh, as long as weather is permitting, all, you know, all kinds of things. As long as it's good for us, we'll show up for what the church is doing. But no sense of it is my responsibility, my calling under God at some level to lead in this church. Now I'm defining leadership as, as broad here. Uh, leadership is sometimes with just one other person. And I think there are times in your life where your calling is, I mean, and I mean this you know, even for instance, as a parent, your calling is to lead your children. That's part of, I mean, I think that's part of what being a parent is. You're not just supposed to give them a home and give them food and give them clothes, but you're also supposed, you're supposed to. God has designed you to be the one who is the primary influencer of their lives. And so there is a calling to lead. But God has also called you within the church to be responsible for one another. So, I mean, it saddens me that it is so difficult to find people willing to teach classes or to serve in various ways. Uh, and I, I mean, I realize I'm preaching to the choir in this, this section. So this is really more for the, you guys are doing stuff. Uh, so, you know, just the people who are willing, I'm willing to help in this little tiny way that will cost me about 15 minutes of my time. But beyond that, we are called to give of ourselves for the sake of others. And particularly called to give of ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you, when you have times where the church is most being like God, um, there, there is an abundance. So I'm thinking, for instance, of, of when the tabernacle is built and Moses uh, is given a command by God, tell the people to bring, and this is such an amazing thing, God says, tell the people to bring whatever you want as an offering. And he gives a list of the things that they need to build the tabernacle. He says, just as your heart leads you. And they have so much stuff that comes in that Moses has to say to the people, stop bringing stuff. Or I go to Acts 2, uh, when the church begins, 
And you've got all these people here who are in the city of Jerusalem who are staying longer than they expected. But there, is not, there could not be found among them anyone with a need because everyone was interested in giving to help others. So there's, there's a powerful image here that, that when we, for instance, if we say uh, we really need somebody to teach the Sunday school class, the, you know, the third grade Sunday school class or whatever it is, um, if, if we don't have too many people volunteering, we should be concerned. Now, I'm not saying, you know, if we, uh, oh, if we can't get anybody, then we should be concerned. I think that's a poor view of discipleship. Because I think discipleship means there should be a, not just a willingness but an anxiousness to serve the Lord by giving of my time and my energy and my intellectual abilities or whatever it is, if we don't have too many people, then we should be a little concerned. Because that's who God has designed us to be as Christians. To reflect His glory in the world by leading in various ways. Leading through service, encouraging others, praying for others. Now, I would even say it this way: if we, if we, if we said to the church, you know, we need to be praying for this church, that God would do what He wants among us. If we didn't have one hundred percent. Because prayer is one of the most basic things of the Christian life. If we didn't have 100% of our people say, yes, I will pray for this church. I don't know if we've ever done this, but let's say we had a sign-up sheet. Hey, if you would like to pray for a Crossroad Christian Church over the next three or four months as we're going through whatever, uh, would you please write your name down so that we'll know you're praying? If we didn't have a 100% response, we should be concerned. Because that would mean that our lives have become so self-focused that we can't even pray for the church. So, so these are the kind of things I think that this psalm calls us to. Looking at the majesty of God and looking at the dignity of where God has placed us as human beings is supposed to lead us to the point where we would Glorify God by leading in some shape or fashion. By doing something that is giving of our lives to make the world a more beautiful place, a more uh, God-centered place, and that begins in our local church. So I want to encourage you this morning. To, to seriously consider what it is that God has called you to do. What it is, and, and, if, you, and if your response is, well, you know, I'm just, I've got so much going on in my own personal life, I've got so much going on in my own family, I've just got so much going on, then you should be concerned. Because God has called you to bigger things than yourself. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Lamp and Light Podcast. If you want to be updated when new episodes are available, make sure you subscribe. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review so that more people can find this podcast in the future. Thank you.